Tonight, we are looking at Exodus chapter 29 together. Exodus chapter 29. Last week, we looked at chapter 28, which the whole chapter is a description of the sacred garments that were to be made and and given to the priests for their special service. In this chapter, chapter 29, we see the, the consecration, the setting apart as sacred of the priests for their task. And along with that involves a sacred ceremony, an ordination ceremony, along with animal sacrifices for a sin offering and purification. This was a very solemn time in which Aaron and his sons were set apart for an incredibly important role in Israel as the people of God. And as I did last week, I think what I'd like to do is instead of reading all 46 verses and then going back and and kind of trying to flesh it out, I think I'd like to take it parts at a time and kind of walk through it with you together, making some points and applications along the way. And I think that might help us to focus more on the text and and not, not get lost in the details as we read through 46 verses together. But let's look at this chapter together. Exodus chapter 29, verse number 1. And this is the word of the Lord to Moses. It says, this is what you are to do to consecrate them, referring to the priests, so that they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect, And from the finest wheat flour, make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast, and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast, and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket, and present them along with the bull and the two rams. Just a a little bit here to focus on in these first few verses is the idea that I think is somewhat foreign to us, but the idea that among God's people, there is a special group of people that is set apart, sacred from the rest of the Israelite people. So all of the people of God have been redeemed. They've been brought out of bondage in Egypt and have been rescued by God. They have all entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai. But among all of these people, God, coming from God, from his sovereign will, he has selected from among them one tribe out of the 12 to serve him in these religious worship matters. And that is the tribe of the Levites. And then even within the Levites, the the tribe of Levi, God has selected Aaron and his family line to serve as priests in the nation of Israel. And so from that, from this moment on, only those who could claim a direct ancestry to Aaron could serve as a priest in the nation of Israel. And then from among those sons of Aaron, there would be one who would serve as high priest. And only one at a time. And he would serve for his whole life until he died. And then the next generation, there would be one of the sons of Aaron who would serve as high priest. 
And so it's this idea of, of sacred people, of people who are specifically set apart, consecrated for a special task, for a special role. And their special role in Israel was essentially to function as mediators, to function as mediator priests between God and the people. So they, they were like dual representatives, two-way representatives. They represented God and his word to the people, but they also represented the people to God in making sacrifices on their behalf and cleansing them in the sight of God. So they were the mediators, the go-betweens between the, the common people and God. And as a part of setting them apart for this sacred task was a very serious solemn ceremony, a ceremony that had several specific aspects to it that, in fact, it lasted for seven days that would set these priests apart for their special role. And so these mediator priests need to be sanctified. They needed to be set apart as sacred by means of a solemn ordination ceremony. And the first couple of verses here, God tells Moses and the people what they need in preparation for this ceremony. He says they need some animals. They need a young bull, and they need two rams without defect. And each of these animals is going to be offered as a sacrifice with different meaning and different significance for each of those sacrifices in the course of this ordination ceremony. And... As all sacrifices to God needed to be, they needed to be without defect. And I think that point is, is clear to us, isn't it? That, that if we're going to offer something to God, especially an animal that is to represent us before God and, and stand in our place for our guilt, it needs to be the very best that we can bring. Not, not something flawed, not something that is broken, but animals without defect. And then from the finest of what God has given you, from the finest of the wheat, from the finest of the food that you have, you are to make bread. And notice the emphasis throughout verse 2 on it being unleavened bread. I think for a couple of reasons. One is to draw our attention back to the Passover as a reminder that these are redeemed people of God. They have been brought out of bondage. They've been rescued by God. And now in consecrating the priest to represent them before God, they are to do it by means of unleavened bread. And I think, too, the idea of leaven uh, sometimes in the scriptures connotes the idea of impurity or of sin. And so to be free of leaven is to be free of impurity, to be sacred. One of the commentators that I read made a very interesting point about the bull and the rams in that in Egyptian worship, both the bull and rams were set up as sacred in Egyptian worship. The Israelites have come out of Egypt, right? And so now in coming out of Egypt, instead of seeing the ram or the bulls as sacred, they are offering them, they're putting them to death and using them as sacrifices and applying to them sin and guilt that would be offered before the Lord. And so they're to bring these, the best animals that they have, the best of their, their flour for the baking of unleavened bread. And then they're to bring them in a basket along with the animals. And then verse 4 
tells us another important step in the setting apart of Aaron and his sons for the priesthood, and that was to wash them. Verse 4 says, Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. The, the word that is used here, the Hebrew word, signifies a complete washing. Uh, many commentaries that I read suggested that this would have been probably more along the lines of a full immersion type of washing. Later on in Scripture, they're not required to go through a full washing, but only to wash their hands and to purify themselves in that way. But the idea of washing is the idea of purification, isn't it? Purification, putting off of filth, putting off, and it's symbolic. It's not just that they need to be physically clean, but it's symbolic of the fact that they need to, in their own lives, be holy as they are set apart to be sacred priests for God. And so it's the idea of physical cleansing, but intended to represent spiritual cleansing, purification before God. And then in verse 5, we see that another part of the ceremony was an official investiture, if you will, of, of taking the sacred garments that were described in chapter 28 and officially putting them on Aaron and the priests and preparing them for this role. And then in verse number seven, the next step of the ceremony is the anointing of oil. And so verse seven says, take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. And so anointing was a very significant part of this ordination process. Anointing with oil in the scripture is used in many different places and it almost always signifies the idea of selection, the idea of choice, of God's choice falling on someone for a special task. So uh, priests would be anointed, as we see here. Uh, kings would be anointed. Uh, we see David, when he is chosen by God, he is anointed by the prophet uh, Samuel. Prophets at times were anointed. So we see that anointing is associated with selection, with calling. And it also, in different places in the Old Testament, as well as in the New, the idea of anointing carries with it the, the symbolism of being granted power and enablement by the Spirit of God to fulfill their task. We see that especially with, with David, that when he was anointed by Samuel, that he also received the Spirit of God that would come upon him. And so the idea of selection, the idea of setting apart, and it's a special ceremony showing that selection, but then probably also symbolizing the being empowered by the Holy Spirit for their task. And so then Aaron is anointed and his sons are anointed. And then in addition to Aaron putting on the full head priest garments, his sons are also dressed in their priestly garments that, that demonstrate that they are not the high priest, but that they, they are priests, but of a lower level of priesthood. And they put on their garments. In verse 8, it says, Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. And the priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Meaning that essentially God at this moment is establishing a family line, a family succession of priesthood beginning with Aaron. And so you could say that at any point in Israel's history, 
when someone claimed the priesthood that was not a part of Aaron's line and was not chosen according to the biblical pattern, they were not a legitimate high priest. And there were times in Israel's history when the high priesthood was essentially bought or it was gained by favor or manipulation. It's not a true priesthood. A true priesthood follows the word of the Lord and is handed down by succession in the family line of Aaron and are specifically called, chosen out for the service. And then in verse number, at the end of verse number nine, it says, then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And in the ordination process, and the idea of ordination is the idea of, of selection, selecting and setting apart for a special service. And a part of that ordination ceremony would be a series of sacrifices. And they each had a little bit different purpose, each of the sacrifices. The first sacrifice that is referenced in beginning in verse number 10 is a sin offering. Now, each of these offerings that is described here receive fuller treatment, more explanation in the book of Leviticus. But here we see just a little summary of how these different sacrifices functioned and what their purpose was. So first of all, verse 10 says, bring the bull. This is the bull and the two rams that were to be set apart earlier in the passage. This is the bull and it is to be brought to the front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. This is something that we see in sacrificial passages. We see it especially on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And so what, is this, what does this mean? What is the symbolic nature of this laying on of the hands? Most likely it is the idea of, of identification. In the sense that Aaron is identifying with this animal, his sons, and placing their hands, they're identifying with this animal. And since this is a sin offering, essentially they are understanding, they are recognizing that this animal is standing in their place. This animal is standing in their place, and this animal is receiving the guilt and bearing the sin of Aaron and his sons. And in a sense, this animal then is now representative of Aaron and his sons, standing in their place as a substitute. And so they place their hands on its head. Verse 11 says, Slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. And of course, we know from Scripture, especially Leviticus, when these uh, offerings are more fully described, that the, the atonement for sin required the shedding of blood. It required the, the application and the sprinkling of blood. We see on the Day of Atonement, in that special one-day atoning sacrifice, that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and actually sprinkle blood in the very presence of God himself on the, the Ark of the Covenant, on that mercy seat. Here, they are, they're doing this on the bronze altar, which is outside, just outside of the tent of meeting, at the front entrance of the tent of meeting. And as we saw when we were looking at this particular piece of tabernacle furniture, 
the four corners had four horns on it. And they are to take some of this blood and, and apply it with their finger to the four horns that are in the corner of this. And, and perhaps that could signify like, like a part representing the whole, in a sense that these four corners represent the whole altar, and, and, and also sprinkling it around the base. It's the idea of a complete offering, a complete sacrifice. And then verse 13 says that they are to take all the fat on the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, and both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And though this, this, when you read verses like this, it seems totally foreign to us, doesn't it? I mean, you start getting into different parts of the, the bull's body, and this part is to go on the altar and be burned, but this part is to go outside the camp and be burned. So what's the significance of that? What, what's the meaning? Well, several things here are important. One is nothing of this animal is to be eaten. Nothing is to remain of this animal. Why? Because it represents our sin. This is specifically a sin offering. This represents the sin of Aaron and his sons. So there is no partaking of the meat of this sacrifice. All of our sin is to be taken away by means of this sacrifice. And I think another significance, perhaps, one, one of the commentators that I read suggested this, is that with these internal organs, especially the liver and the kidneys, again, this seems foreign to us, but in the ancient world, there was a specific form of divination in which they would seek to, uh, to ascertain the will of the gods by means of how the, the animal's liver looked or a particular part of the body of this animal looked. They would actually investigate it. They would study it. They would study its color, its shape, it, and they would seek to ascertain divine, if you will, the will of the gods through this way. And the commentator suggested that, that this is to have no part in the worship of Israel. And so to certify that and to put, a, put the, the final period, if you will, on that, and that there's no place for this in the worship of Israel, you take those things and you completely burn them. They're gone. They're eliminated. And then the rest of it, it's hide and it's intestines, basically the parts that were not good for for any of the other parts of the offering, they're to be taken outside the camp and burned. Again, symbolizing the removal of our sin, right? Outside the camp. Interestingly, the writer of Hebrews draws a, a reference from this and says that Jesus was sacrificed. He bore our sin outside the camp. He outside the gates of Jerusalem. And so there, there's this, the, the symbolism of the sin being taken outside of the camp. So that is the sin offering. Then, so there was a bull and then two rams. The first of the rams, verse 15, is for a second sacrifice. Take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Again, the the symbolism of representation or identification. Slaughter it and take the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces 
and wash the internal organs and the legs, putting them with the head and the other pieces, and then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. And so this one is a little bit different in that every single part of this ram is to be burnt, totally consumed by this in this offering. So none of it is to be eaten. None of it is to be taken outside the camp. The, the whole part, the whole ram is to be offered to the Lord. This is, this is called a whole burnt offering. It is a technical term in the Old Testament, an olah, essentially. It is a whole, a complete burnt offering to the Lord. And there is the sense of propitiation for sin involved in this offering, but there also is connotation of a gift to the Lord, of, of giving to God that which is pleasing to Him. And you can see that in, in the offering being given and the smoke arising to the Lord as something that is pleasing, that is delightful to the Lord. One of the commentators also suggested that there is a, a great distinction here between the worship of Israel and the worship of other gods. Because in the worship of other gods, in their sacrifices, in their worship system, this is how the gods were fed. But there's no, there's no discussion of that at all in this passage because God doesn't need to be fed, does he? God, God's life is not sustained by food as if he needed anything. God is completely self-sufficient, isn't he? But this is wholly given to the Lord as uh, an offering and as a, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Now, both of those offerings, the sin offering and the burnt offering, are really just in preparation for the ordination. Think about that for a second. So before we even ordain Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, we have to get them ready for it by purifying them and offering sacrifices for them for their sin and their guilt before the Lord. Then the second ram, the third offering, is specifically for their ordination and their consecration as priests. Take the other ram, verse 19, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron, and his sons on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet, and then splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Uh, again, this sounds odd to us, right? Okay, you're going to slaughter an animal. You're going to take some of its blood and you're going to put some on my ear and on my right toe and on my right thumb. What is the significance of that? A couple of things that I think are interesting about this and, and, and what it signifies. One is it seems to signify the idea of, of purification because the only other place in scripture where this language is found is in a place where those who had had a defiling disease are brought back to purification and an altar and this sacrifice is made for them and the same exact language is used of applying blood to their right ear, their right thumb, their right toe. So there seems to be some uh, element of purification involved with it. And also the symbolism of head to toe, I think probably communicates the idea of fullness, doesn't it? 
of, of completeness. That, that all of Aaron, all of his sons, totally in fullness, are to be given to the Lord in this service. And then the rest of the blood is to be splashed against the sides of the altar. Verse 21, And then take some of the blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. And then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. Interesting, isn't it? So a part of the ordination process is not only anointing them with oil, but anointing them with blood. Blood and oil applied to them, sprinkled on them, sprinkled on their garments. Take from this ram, verse 22, take from this ram the fat, the fat tail, the fat on the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them, and the right thigh. This is the ram for the ordination. So this is a special sacrifice for their setting apart, for their consecration. Now here comes in the food that was mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 23, From the basket of bread made without yeast, which is before the Lord, take one round loaf, one thick loaf with olive oil mixed in, and one thin loaf. Put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and have them wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. Again, what's, what's the meaning of this? The idea is, is taking some of the parts of this animal, taking some of this food, and essentially elevating it up to the Lord. One way of understanding is that they wave it back and forth. Another understanding of the verb is that it simply means to elevate or to raise up before the Lord. And it seems to connote or portray the idea of, of making peace, of a peace offering before the Lord. And it is to be received from the Lord as, as a gift, as a presentation. Then, verse 25, take from their hands and burn them on the altar along with the burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a food offering presented to the Lord. After you take the breast of the ram for Aaron's ordination, wave it before the Lord as a wave offering, and it will be your share. Meaning, Moses gets a share of this third offering. And that is his portion, his food, if you will, his provision in serving in this special role before the Lord. And that becomes a pattern then for all of the priests from that point forward. Essentially what this is, is Moses is acting as the first priest and he's consecrating Aaron and his sons, and they will now be priests in perpetuity. And so he is, as essentially as the first priest, the first officiant of this ordination ceremony, he is receiving a sacred portion of this meal that was offered to God. And it becomes his portion. Verse 27, Consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belong to Aaron and his sons, the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented, this is always to be the perpetual share from the Israelites for Aaron and his sons. It is the contribution that the Israelites are to make to the Lord from their fellowship offerings. And the idea of this is that Aaron and his sons, the priests, they're doing a service on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. They're representing the people before God. And so they're to be taken care of in some way. And one way in which they were taken care of, at least a portion of that, is they were given a special 
portion of the sacrifices that they were to offer before God. And it became their food. It was their meat. But it was sacred. And it could only be eaten by the priests. It was not to be given to anyone else. Verse 29, Aaron's sacred garments will belong to his descendants so that they can be anointed and ordained in them. In other words, these garments don't belong to Aaron. This, this office of high priest doesn't belong to Aaron. It doesn't belong even to his sons. It belongs to all of Israel as a gift from God. And these garments are to be passed down from one generation to another. They're to be given to whoever fulfills this role as high priest. The son who succeeds him as priest and comes to the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place is to wear them seven days. So that seven-day wearing of the garments is like a transition kind of a, a uh, symbolic ritual transition from one high priest to the next. Verse 31, Take the ram for the ordination and cook the meat in a sacred place. At the entrance to the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons are to eat the meat of the ram and the bread that is in the basket. They are to eat these offerings by which atonement was made for their ordination and consecration, but no one else may eat them because they are sacred. And if any of the meat of the ordination ram or any bread is left over till morning, burn it up. It must not be eaten because it is sacred. So only for Aaron, only for the priests. And interestingly enough, I think very symbolic is there to come right in front of the entrance to the tent right in front of the entrance to the tabernacle and eat this meal. Why? Because they're essentially eating in the presence of God. It's it's kind of like what we saw back in Exodus 24 with the ratification of the covenant, that that there was a meal shared with uh, the elders of Israel in God's presence. I think something similar is happening here, that as representing the people before God, they're eating of this meal in the presence of the Lord. Verse 35 Do for Aaron and his sons everything that I've commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. So so this this first ordination ceremony is a seven-day ceremony. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Now, I don't think that the whole process of what we just looked at, so I I don't think the, the bull, the two rams, the ram for ordination. I don't think that whole thing happens every day for the seven days. But according to this, at least there is a bull sin offering offered on each of the seven days. And it is to be a seven-day long ritual. And clearly the number seven is significant, isn't it? The number seven is significant all the way through Scripture, and it began with the week of creation, didn't it? And I think even with the tabernacle. There is, there is creation-type significance in the tabernacle. In essence, like the tabernacle is to be like a little mini-cosmos, if you will, where God dwells. And so for seven days, you are to offer up a bull as a sin offering every day and purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy and whatever touches it will be holy. Again, very interesting, isn't it? That, that this bronze altar where the sacrifices are going to be made, 
before, almost kind of like in conjunction with the sacrifices being made on it for the first time, is also the consecration and the setting apart, the purifying of the altar itself for that period of seven days. So even the altar needs to be purified. It's in the sense of it, it's been tainted because it was made with human hands. And it needs to be purified by means of sacrifice. And then it will be holy. And then in verses 38 to 41, we see kind of a a move toward what's beyond this seven-day ritual ordination of the priests and talks about what the priests have to do every day as a part of their service. Verse 38 says, This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of hen of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Think about that. Every single day. Every single day in the history of the nation of Israel, these lambs were to be offered. One in the morning and one at twilight. One in the evening. Every single day. And along with every single day, the taking care of the lampstand in the evening and the morning. And the taking care of the table of showbread, the bread of presence. And so this was a a daily ritual for all of the priests. And one of the commentators suggests as a really good point is after, you know, a really special celebration like this seven day where Aaron and his sons are, are ordained or even like a really special celebration like the day of atonement or the feast of unleavened bread, these everyday sacrifices could have become very routine and very ritual and monotonous. But he made the point, those are the sacrifices in which God comes to meet with his people. In those everyday sacrifices, God is meeting with his people. God is there in the midst of his people. And really that's the focus then at the very conclusion of this passage. The emphasis for all of this the setting apart of priests, the sacrifices to consecrate the priests, to ordain them, the special garments that they wear, all of it, the daily sacrifices, morning and evening, all of it is for one purpose, so that God may dwell with his people. So we see in verse 42, for the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There, I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet the Israelites, meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. What ultimately makes this place holy and makes the altar holy and makes Aaron and his sons holy, what ultimately makes them holy is God and his presence associated with them. There will will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar 
and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then notice verse 45. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord, their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. You see as an emphasis emphasis throughout much of the old Testament, that the purpose for God calling Israel is so that he might be their God and they would be his people so that he would dwell among them so that he would, he would have a redeemed people for himself, for his own glory, that he would display his glory among them and that he would relate to them and he would be their God. So what's fascinating about this passage and I think here's how we can move into applying this to us is in God is holy, isn't he? I mean, you can get that sense from this passage of all of this ceremony that was needed to set apart and to sanctify and to purify and to atone. God is holy. We are sinners. That's a problem, isn't it? So we have a, a an infinitely holy God And we are defiled sinners. How does a holy God meet with defiled sinners? First of all, we need an intermediary. We need someone to stand between us. And in the Old Testament economy, it was Aaron. It was his sons. It was the the priesthood. These mediator priests were, were given to stand between a holy God and sinful people. And these mediator priests, they themselves had to be set apart and sanctified and offerings had to be made for them to purify them before they could stand on behalf of the people and minister for them. How can a holy God relate to a sinful people? We need somebody to stand in between and mediate for us. Well, we know that that principle of mediation of priesthood has ultimately been fulfilled in Jesus, don't we? He is the high priest as Hebrews four and five talked about, but he's not a son of Aaron. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. So how can Jesus serve as our high priest? It's because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he is not tied to the specific Aaronic priesthood. He is a priest called and anointed by God like Melchizedek was one who was a priest of God, not tied to the line of Aaron. Jesus is a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek that we see in the book of Genesis. But Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus doesn't have to have a sacrifice offered for him before he can stand on our behalf because he's perfect. Jesus lives forever. We don't have to transfer the priesthood from one generation to the next. Because Jesus lives forever. He is our great high priest. He's perfect. He is infinite. He is eternal. And he stands on our behalf. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. We also see in this passage, because of the holiness of God, in order for God to meet with us and relate to us, there can be no other way other than through atoning sacrifice. This is a bloody chapter, isn't it? There's blood everywhere in this chapter. 
There's the blood of animals as they're slaughtered. There's the blood on the horns of the altar. There's the blood at the base of the altar. There's the blood on ears and and thumbs and toes. There's the blood on their garments themselves. If we get blood on our clothes, we we want to wash it off. We want to bleach it, right? We want to we want to get take care of that. That blood was never washed off. That blood symbolized that these priests were consecrated, set apart to God. So Old Testament was a bloody religion. Josephus says that in when on the day of atonement when sacrifices was made that that blood flowed everywhere. Why why blood? Leviticus says there is no atonement for sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, isn't he? We don't need bulls, we don't need rams, we don't need lambs. We don't need any more animal sacrifices because Jesus has shed his blood once for all. He is our atoning sacrifice. And interestingly enough, Jesus fulfills, in the one person, he fulfills both sacrifice and priest, doesn't he? In the Old Testament, you had a man, a priest, who would take a separate animal and sacrifice it and offer its blood. Jesus is both. He is the sacrifice, the eternal, perfect, fully fulfilling the will of God, sacrifice for our sins. And he's also the great high priest who rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God and is our mediator between us and God. So we need an intermediary. We have it now in Jesus Christ. We need atoning sacrifice. We have it in Jesus Christ. So we, as sinners can relate to a holy God because Jesus has given himself and now mediates for us. If that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't make you worship and praise God, then we need to do a little uh, heart check, right? This is is the whole gospel. This is what God has done for us. And the story has been being told ever since the beginning of time, hasn't it? Going all the way back to Genesis 3, we can see there that God came and he mediated on behalf of Adam and Eve. They were full of shame. They were full of guilt. And what did they need? They needed covering and they needed sacrifice. And God gave it for them. He offered a sacrifice for them. Moving forward throughout the whole rest of the Bible, we see that principle of sacrifice needed, of representation for our sins. It all points to Jesus. In him we have life. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. And now, here's the great truth of life in Jesus, is we don't need an Aaron. We don't need an Eleazar, a son of Aaron. We don't need another normal human being to stand in our place before God. Because we are all now priests. There is not among us a sacred set-apart group of priests from the rest of the children of God. According to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are all now a priesthood of priests. And we have one great high priest who has cleared the path for us and torn the veil so that we may go boldly into the presence of God. Our God is still holy, but we have a great Savior. And we have a great representative, a great high priest who represents us before God. 
And so may we worship him. May we have faith in him. May we build our lives on him. And I hope that this passage, as foreign as it may seem to our ears, as bloody as it is, I hope that it gives you a greater appreciation for what Jesus has done for us in fulfilling all of this and bringing it to its completion. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, you are so holy and righteous and just. We are sinners, flawed and broken, and yet in your mercy, you chose to love us. You chose to give us grace. You chose to become our Father and we your children. And you gave your Son, the Lord Jesus, to stand in our place so that that might happen. We thank you that Jesus is our great high priest. We thank you that he is our atoning sacrifice. He is our propitiation for our sins. We thank you that through his blood, we now have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. And you can be our God and we can be your people. Father, we long for the day when we can meet with you in your presence and forever and ever in glory, you will be our God and we will be your people. Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to live in faith, in worship. Help us to see ourselves as the consecrated priests that we are now in Christ. And may we represent you before the world. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.